doing doctoral studies, it became more of an interest, uh, specifically around research and teaching and training um, others around autism. Um, so I have done the disability services job. I've done it in more than one university, actually. I also did it as a doctoral um, graduate assistant at Penn State as well. So also another environment with different, you know, um, eccentricities as far as size and how to accommodate and things like that. Um, how I do this, what I've learned over the years, uh, is I can sort of try to divine what you guys are looking for, but what I have found is, and I have some ideas probably as to what that is just from experience, but I always find that every setting is also a little bit different as well. So what I have found is uh, the best way to do this is to actually start off by sort of establishing a list of what you're looking for. So what things are you concerned about? What do you want to know? Um, we only have like an hour. I will try to probably put six or seven things maybe up there, maybe eight. Um, we'll get to as many as we can, kind of prioritize those as I go. And I kind of just go through and I address each of those. It is really open. We're a small group. Um, you can fo ask follow-ups. Again, we have like an hour, so we do want to be efficient with our time. Um, but if something is something or you're not sure or whatever, let's have dialogue. That's what we're here for. Um, so with that said, um, what do you want to know? Let's start to build our list. What brought you here, Anessi? Yes. Um, so I have had possibly two or three students with Asperger's in my class. Yes. And um, obviously, well, the needs of any student on the spectrum are important and, and unique. But uh, Asperger's students, at least the experience that I have, present an interesting opportunity of students who are very bright, may or may not be verbal, may or may not be disruptive, uh, you know, in a, you know, in the classroom. Yeah. Not in a, obviously they're not, it's not purposeful, but yeah. I'm just trying to think of, think about ways of, um, you know, respectfully dealing with those kinds of um, issues in the classroom. Okay. What what issues are you seeing specifically? Just so I'm not, so I'm, um, so I'm clear. Yeah, the, the student, uh, mostly the student who, uh, for lack of a better phrase, talks too much. Yeah. And of course, we always have those students. Um, but I oh no, this is on another level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah folks, heard it before. Yeah. So that's that's and I. I'm going to put this under the classification of kind of classroom management. Right. Is that okay? Yeah. 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 On that? Okay. Yes. This one comes up every time, folks. Yep. Okay. Okay, next. Others, what other thoughts? Here, sure. Um, so I had a similar experience um, just this past fall in my program. We had three people who we felt may have been on the spectrum, and mm -hmm. one verbally confirmed to me that she did have that diagnosis, but she did not go to DSS. Okay. Um, so I agree. Classroom management, uh, the outbursts were just very disruptive. And students, the other students really began to resent it. Yeah. And as well, we have a clinical component to our program, and it's more in a health profession, so it's very, very difficult to deal clinically. And in fact, I called in Angie because we were really, we had no idea what to do. Yeah. How are you in clinical settings? That brings up a good point. And just sort of clinical, medical sort of education. settings, education. Well, who else is in the room? Just so I have a sense. Anyone different? So mostly at school of ed and medical. We're, we're in freshman studies. We teach okay. The university life class. Yes. Teach and advise. Yep. Yep. Basic prep skills. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So sort of the the outburst, the conversation, sort of emotional liability issues. Yes. Okay. Others? Mm -hmm. Yes, right here. I guess two things. One is 
just what kinds of behaviors or things we're looking for to be able to identify something might need alternative types of approaches, and also what what those approaches are, especially when it comes to teaching complex material. Okay. Um, that is maybe a little more abstract and not very concrete, and so like how to get that across yeah. in that context. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna put that maybe in our learning styles. Is that fair? Some of that will go along with characteristics also. Okay. Okay. Good. Just if we're on the right track for sure. Yeah. Others? Yes. I've learned a little bit because you know at least one of the students um, we we didn't have in common my niece is working as a mentor in freshman studies and had the student that in the early classroom um, socialization I would see this young woman sitting in the lobby of Fakey every day mm -hmm. in between everything um, and I was never really sure to, you know um, I actually did go up to her once I, I did know her through through my niece we, she introduced us mm -hmm. and, and said you know would you like to come up to the English department of tea this place to hang out and um, I thought she was going to like first throw up and then run out <laughs> she looked like she was terrified yeah. was and I basically said just come up for a long I said you know what she has the offer and she yeah. wants to do which is good but but I feel like to one extent I've been socialized on campus yeah you know how Fostering socialization. Um, another one now as well. I know who's yeah. in another department, but has come on some field trips that we've run yeah. cooperatively. And mm -hmm. um, I see him around all the time. As, do you have any friends? I mean, I, I never see him with anybody else. But it's a social connection, connectedness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, good. Others. Right here. Sure. Well, I just want to go along with that one. I have a student um, that I had in clinical. And when I have students in clinical, I never have more than eight, which is a gift. But sometimes it's not a gift if you have a student who can be um, distracting to other students. Yeah. Like maybe even something as simple as asking where we're going to meet the next day ten times. Yeah. And um, the other students tend to literally wipe them off their own mind. They yes. They, they just can't be bothered. They feel time is taken from them. Yeah. They don't, you know, they're kind of a step above outwardly making fun of somebody, but yeah. there's still that feeling. Yeah. And yet I can't, because of breaking confidentiality, no, right. etc., I'm not in a position to take the other students and say, hey. Yeah. So if you have suggestions for that. Yeah, you bring up a very good point. Um, I've been thinking about this as well in terms of getting more education to more people, right? Not just to faculty, but to students, to entire communities, right? Because we're a community, right? Especially, I'm sure that is something you certainly foster here at Seton Hall from my understanding of your philosophy. So, um, no doubt about it. Yeah, so I'll kind of put that under classroom management because I will address that's one of those things that we see a lot too, so the repetition, disruptiveness. So, we'll talk about that. Others. Thank you, So supportive measures. Okay, like what are you thinking? What what kind of things are you running into that you feel need to be supported? Yeah, yeah, having to Yeah. Okay. Okay, so how, so I've heard a couple different things. So how to make them connect to resources? So sometimes they're avoiding doing that, hearing that more than once. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. But you're stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Others. Good. 
Okay, we certainly can dialogue as we go. There's plenty here actually to talk about. I want to first of all sort of just open by talking about sort of simplifying autism for you. It sounds like a sort of crazy thing to do. First of all, um, so Asperger's syndrome, as I also heard come up as well, is, is part of now a classification in the, the new DSM. DSM-5 is autism spectrum disorder. Um, actually four different conditions that were considered colloquially on the spectrum have now been condensed into one. So that's why I'm always using ASD. But folks with Asperger's syndrome still, they still may identify as having Asperger's syndrome. So you decide to sort of always translate for myself, okay, that's on the spectrum basically with a lot of shared, uh, shared characteristics essentially. I always break it down into sort of two areas that in essence we're getting at when we talk about these concerns, these problems. There are sort of two aspects, if you will, of autism. One is the social skills. We already talked about that a little bit. What does that mean? We're going to talk about social skills. They have trouble with social skills. Anyone know how to break down what a social skill is? Anyone know how you learn social skills? No, we probably did it when we were really young, right? So I always remind people too that ASD is considered a developmental disability. So for those of you who have not so studied DD specifically, all that means is their, their typical development, we have some med school people here, typical development has been arrested or slowed significantly. So all those things that you and I learned, eye contact and smiling at our parents even when we were infants, has been either delayed or arrested altogether and they may or may not actually acquire those skills. So when you learn those things later, or you attempt to learn those things later, they have to really be broken down and explained, and we, the idea of concrete learning came up, has to be broken down and taught concretely, right? So I use the example very often of eye contact. Many of you probably notice that folks on the spectrum don't have particularly good eye contact. Well, the first thing I'll ask you all is, what's good eye contact? Describe it for me, what does it look like? You know? Yeah, we all just do it, <laughs> right? We just do it. Okay, so Andy, you're my victim today. <laughs> okay, okay, we're already tight. Okay, so Andy, Andy, if I were talking to you and I was like, how would you feel right now? Too much, too much. Too, too much. Not good. Not good eye contact. Okay, so oftentimes when people are uh, on spectrum says you, you don't have very good eye contact, they start to do that. They start to overcompensate. I've actually seen this in folks, adults on the spectrum, who I interact with, who I know, at some point have received that feedback, and they overcompensated by doing the creepy stare thing. Okay, it's a lot better way of putting it. Okay, good contact, eye contact. Actually, as I'm talking to Angie, I'm actually bouncing off of her eyes and back on within milliseconds, right? Repeatedly throughout the time that we're talking, so she does not feel creeped out. Okay, all right. But oftentimes, obviously, we see folks who look away entirely. So some tips, folks, and what you'll see is that often what I'm going to talk about is translating their experience for you and helping you with some very basic skills that make a huge difference when interacting with folks on the spectrum. So if folks on the spectrum say to us, when people look at me in the eyes, the reason I look away is it feels so frightening to me. It feels like you are a tiger in a cage pacing back and forth and staring at me like you're going to eat me. That's what it feels like to them. That's what they describe. Okay, so if that's the case, what do we do? How do I make them feel comfortable? Do I give good eye contact? What do you think? Blocks either way? No, folks. 
I look away. I look away. Right? If that makes you feel uncomfortable, why do I keep doing it? Why would I keep doing it if I know that about someone on the spectrum? Now we're going to say, that's so rude. Oh my gosh. We're supposed to give, we're all taught from the time we're young, we're good gift of eye contact, right? So instead, I might just look over her shoulder like this. I'm still looking at her, I'm still talking to her, she can still hear me. And see her nodding as we're talking, okay? Now, if I still notice she's uncomfortable, and I'll know because she'll continue to avoid looking at me, I might just look away entirely. Maybe I'm on my computer as I'm talking to her. So, how's that class going? Is that right? All together. What folks on the spectrum tell us is that makes them feel so much more comfortable. Oh my gosh, it's like, oh, that's a load off, okay? Seems weird to us, right? Now, in terms of communication, again, I mentioned we mentioned concrete learning, you know, social skills. They are not good with nonverbal. How much of our communication is nonverbal? Anyone know? Any psych 101 classes? Anyone? How much is nonverbal? Guesses? It's about 80. Yes, about 80%. So, folks, if you don't understand 80% of communication that's happening, how much are you getting? About 20, right? Okay, and then here's the other problem. Okay, also don't understand metaphoric language, idiom. Uh-oh. Well, Americans, folks, we use it all the time, right? Oh, you feel like a dark cloud is hanging over you, right? all that, love that stuff, right? Bitch in time saves nine. First impression is the lasting one, right? They don't understand any of that, okay? So, they don't understand 80% of our nonverbal, okay? Put this together real quick, folks, right? Don't understand probably about 50% of what we're saying unless we change it to be very, very concrete, okay? Now, if you were sitting in the foyer and scared to death, why do you think that would be? I don't understand you. What the hell are you saying? <laughs> I don't understand any of what you're saying. Here I am in college, I'm around new people, and I'm trying to, it's like you're all speaking Greek to me, right? Yeah, that's part of the reason why the social isolation happens. In part, maybe not the entirety of the situation, okay? But it's scary. Our environments are extremely scary for them. Um, Nerve-wracking, anxiety-provoking, makes it hard to connect with other people. It's all linked, right? Okay, so if that's the case, and I know, they're not going to know my nonverbals, right? So um, those of you who see students, like, how do we usually kind of wrap up a, a meeting with a student? So what are some nonverbals we do to be polite, right? You want to know? Yeah. I'll take that piece of paper. Start to fold your stuff, right? Put it away, right? Maybe push away from your desk, right? Yeah. Okay. So we're doing all that stuff, and they're all still talking away at us, and like, why are they not getting that we have to be done here, right? Okay. Because it's non-verbal. It's just gone. It's not not understood at all. So I have to say, we are done now. I will see you next week at 2 o'clock, you know, on Tuesday, whatever, right? I have to say exactly what I would ordinarily be communicating nonverbally. Simple, folks. These are simple, simple modifications. That's why it's really important, okay? And they go, oh, okay. And what folks on the spectrum will tell you is, I like you. You just tell me what you want. That's great. Just tell me. <laughs> I just want to know. Like all of us, right? We just want some direction, right? We want to be told you know, what is expected of us, right? So here are some very impressionable students with, you know, sitting down with powerful advisors, faculty, others who they look up to, and they just want to understand, right? So also, i got to eliminate what? Idiom, all that stuff. Get rid of it, right? So it could be as simple as I might say, take a seat. What's something someone on the spectrum might do? 
Where would you like me to take it? Not kidding. Not kidding. I was working with a young man in college who was taking a, a one-credit piano class. I love this story because this is where I really learned. And he used to come in every, uh, almost every day. He had a, we, he had a kind of open um, sort of appointment setting uh, with me. And first of all, what he would do is he would walk right through the weight room and right into my office. Okay, so we've probably all seen that one before too, right? So not knowing these social conventions of you need to wait in the weight room and I'll come out and get you and the secretary will let me know you are here, et cetera. So several times I had to walk him back out. Sit down, okay, just wait a few minutes, I'll be done, I'll come out. But you aren't in with anybody. No, I know, but I'm finishing up some stuff from the last person I sat down. I will come get you. So that took maybe three or four times, but we got it. So he came in and I said, uh, so, uh, how's tickling the ivories going? And he goes, what? And I'm like, oh, yeah, right. Stupid counselor. Okay, right. How is piano class going? And he goes, oh, that's great. Um, we're working on this piece. Right? Okay, I get the whole story of the piece they're working on and how much he's enjoying the class, etc. And he kind of comes to the end and he goes, tickling the ivories. That's funny. <laughs> right? So there's my mistake. And we make mistakes and that happens. But, we, but if we know to change those things and have them become part of our repertoire, part of our habit of how we communicate to folks on the spectrum, makes a huge difference. Makes a huge, huge difference. Okay? So some of those basics you can do right now, right? Oftentimes we overthink it. We think we have to do these elaborate accommodations. No, folks. We have to be compassionate. We have to be empathetic and we have to be educated about how to communicate with folks on the spectrum. It's really simple. Yeah, we'll screw up. You'll screw up the first few times you go to, you'll start to do, put your stuff, oh, my, I gotta tell them, oh, I gotta tell them. She said, I gotta tell them that we're done. Right, I forgot, okay. Right, and all those kinds of things. But you will catch yourself once you know and retrain yourself. This is really challenging with counselors. I, I train counselors, right? Counselors are taught good eye contact, square, you know, right? Lean forward, show them that you're listening, right? And I'm like, right, so I'm gonna teach you all that stuff and then I'm gonna tell you unlearn all of that when you work with folks on the spectrum because it's a different set of rules. That's not going to work, okay? All right, so just to set the stage with some of those basics, okay? Because you'll see that I will probably kind of uh, double back around um, as we talk about some of these other things. Okay, classroom management. Classroom is a, a social space. We don't think of it that way. But it has some conventions, right? Our students are supposed to sit, right, quietly, listen, raise their hand when they want to speak, speak relatively briefly, right? And when we ask things for discussion, okay? None of those things, again, are understand. These are social conventions that are not necessarily understand. But you now have some tools, okay? So if someone is dominating classroom time, right? Now, usually they're right. <laughs> That's the other part, right? <laughs> they're like, well, everything they're saying is right. But the, other, the other students are all going, oh, right, and really, really hating this guy really quickly, okay? So it's very simple. Um, you can either talk to the student aside, or with some students you get to say, Andrew, one comment, no more than two minutes. Go. Concrete. Right? And they're like, oh, okay, that's the rule. You've taught me the rule for this classroom. Got it. Thank you. Appreciate that. I can keep it to it. Some will even do this. So anyway, the calculus says that they're going okay. <laughs> you know, right? And you give that command in front of everybody else. Not you could. You do it with everybody. Okay. Why not? Yeah. This is the rule in our classroom. 
I happen to know some of the inspections in the classroom, but why wouldn't I have that as a general rule, right? We want students to be concise and to the point, right? We teach writing parsimony and arguments and rhetoric that way, yes? I have a colleague who um, started doing this technique this semester because she had heard somebody talk about it as a way to generate participation in class, right? Uh -huh. So everybody has to raise their hand. Everyone in the room has to raise his or her hand when she has a question. Regardless of whether they know the answer or not, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You have to raise your hand. So now you are perfectly permitted to not, when she calls on you, if she calls on you to say, I really don't have the answer to this or don't get whatever. Right. She has somebody on the spectrum in the class that she didn't know that he was going to be there. Yeah. And it has been in life safe. Yes. Because she does not have to call on him. Because she is the first one with his hand up and he got it up yeah. and like this and it's very distracting. And I don't know about you, but you're, if I'm in the class and I'm trying to think about my answer, the worst, you start somebody talking, the other thing is something like this. So it was not a technique designed right. to do this. Right. But I see that a lot. I see that working. I really do because it's this again. It's back to that structure and it's setting the social rules right. like for everyone to know. We all know. It's also a really good universal design present principle. If I have everybody do that, so I'm not right. picking on you. It's a spectrum. Yeah. yeah. A few times during the class. Yep. And now I have also had. Um, I've also suggested professors say, well, you can also take them aside and talk to them and say, look, in my class, I really value what you have to say. First of all, your, your answers are great, but I only have so much time. I got to get through my lesson, you know. So um, I would like you to limit to, you know, four answers, you know, that I ask of the class through, uh, if you can count it, four and no more than two minutes on each of them. Can you do that for me? And usually they're the same thing. Usually like, thank you. Yes, that's all I want to know. I don't want to make my professor mad. They don't know they're making us mad. By the way, because if we're doing all this, like, <sighs> we're doing all the nonverbal stuff that we're disgusted with them don't understand that. Got to tell them. Do I just tell them? And I, and I promise you it's appreciated because we think we're being rude, right? Like the first time I started doing some of these things, like we are done now, we will see. I felt like, oh my God, I'm being so rude. And they would be like, okay, great. Thanks. See you next week. I was like, nothing. It was not a thing in the slightest. And I very quickly felt that it actually helped to grow rapport between the, the, the student and the client that I was working with. Was there a hand? I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, if we respond like that, the other students sense our discomfort. Yeah. And then yeah. Ostracizes the other yeah, student ostracizes Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Becomes sort of stigma contagion sort of. Yes. Right. right. So that's what I'm saying. It's like sort of you've got to build in a, a structure that everybody knows and not assume that everyone knows it. Right. Because we do assume that. And we have actually had students not on the spectrum who don't know how to behave in a classroom too, by the way, folks. Right. They're not alone. Um, okay. So sometimes we do have to just, you know, be, be really, really cognizant of that. Okay. So I mentioned there's another aspect other than sort of the social aspect. And one is the other one is sensory. Okay. So I kind of try to break it down for you as easily as possible. By sensory, what I mean is uh, another characteristic of folks on the spectrum is that they're um, highly, usually hypersensitive, sometimes hyposensitive, but most of the time hypersensitive to their environment. This, I'll give you an example. This fluorescent right here is a nightmare for a lot of folks on the spectrum. What this would look like is if I dropped this down right into my eyes and like sat here like this for the entire class, this would it feel like to them. That would be irritating real quick, right? Um, smallest of noises. A lot of us have like a... AC fan in our classroom or a projector fan. I know mine, I always have a projector fan. We can barely hear it. Our brain has learned how to shut that out. Theirs is not. 
Theirs will hear that like it is um, an industrial fan, like right in their face the entire class. And then we wonder why they don't pick up stuff in class <laughs> or they get distracted or they get to the point where they break down. They're trying to hang in there, folks. They're trying. I'm trying to sit in this classroom, though, but this light is killing me. Right? But don't always know to also communicate that to us also. Right? It's just sort of accepted. Like, everywhere I go, the, brights are, the lights are just horrible. Like, I just kind of, I don't, why would I even give feedback to someone about that? Everywhere I go, it looks like this. What's the difference, right? But there, there truly are differences, right? So very often with outbursts, and this is kind of basic behavioral stuff, there's always an antecedent of some kind. There's some trigger. But the thing is, it tends to not be very obvious to us. Because we're not hypersensitive to that, right? We're not getting anxious about a time to test or studying for it or, you know, wanting to be perfect and get an A or any of those kinds of things, right? So uh, they are definitely vulnerable to more anxiety for the social reasons we talked about, for the environmental reasons we talked about, but there may also be neurobiological differences that also make them simply more uh, vulnerable to anxiety, things like that. And we know that sort of the prefrontal lobe kind of fires up um, for folks on the spectrum quite a bit, um, which are those emotional centers, okay? So here's the tricky part. Figuring out what that is, right? Either eliminating it, allowing more breaks. Might have to step away because this is just driving me nuts, right? Maybe it's like you take a, a quick five-minute stretch for your whole class, right? We have to sort of sometimes think creatively about how this might work. It, with counselors, I say, you need to control your office space as much as you possibly can. So you've got to think about AC, heat, light, you know, go for like, like little like lamps instead of like standing lamps or certainly fluorescence, even worse, things like that. Try to do everything you can to sort of manipulate the environment to be as sort of friendly and frankly, Honestly, there's been studies on these, and we don't learn that well with them either. <laughs> so what the heck? Why do every college have these things, right? You know, they're a cheaper solution. I get it. But um, actually, we don't process very well this way. So if they're hypersensitive, think about that way again. If we're all sensitive to this, they're hypersensitive to this. Um, so it includes things like temperature. It includes things like tactile sensitivity, um, which usually doesn't necessarily come up necessarily in the classroom. But when I talk to parents, one of the early signs that the child might be on the spectrum is what I call the naked baby syndrome, <laughs> right? Which is, like, the child has grown out of the stage where they could just wear diapers everywhere, so they have to start putting like clothes on, or maybe you're going to some nice event like church or something like that, and, you know, mom gets them all dressed up in their cute little suit and tie, and, and they, she turns around to get her purse or something, and naked baby goes freaking through the kitchen, right? Oh my god, I didn't get some back up here, get some back dress again, now she's pressed for time, right, the whole thing. Turns around again, naked baby streaking through, right? And they get so frustrated and go, oh, they're being rebellious or anything else, right? No, that's a tactile sensitivity, okay? And what folks prescribe is certain materials uh, feel like sandpaper, right? Feel like um, just itchy, just itchy all the time. Feel cold, feel warm. Feel like pins and needles. Seems strange to us, right? So a lot of times these parents and others have to figure out things like, uh, okay, what's like an alternative material that isn't going to cause naked baby <laughs> right, issues or whatever. Okay, but that certainly can persist into adulthood. You know, we see a lot of folks in the spectrum walking around in sweatpants. I just decoded that for you folks. There's a reason for it. <laughs> okay, because there's a lot of the things that we wear that are, again, are socially acceptable to wear. Um, 
are not comfortable at all. And I often like give the example with my trainees. I say, um, you know, if you go home tonight and you had a really long day and um, you know you did, you guys had your clinical rotation and you're like really exhausted, and you go home to get into bed and you're like, I am so looking forward to just like putting my final pajamas on and going to bed, right? And you put on your pajamas and you realize they're made of sandpaper. But oh, oh, you can't take them off. No, no, you got to lie down in that and try to go to sleep. How successful do you think it would be? Will you be, uh, oh, by the way, will you maybe have an outburst at some point, like good night maybe, if you're made to stay in those? Yeah, possibly. Okay, so very often what we're talking about with the outbursts um, is preventable in the sense that we have to understand what, what the trigger was as much as possible. And that would be talking to the student. I mean, really taking them aside and just being, hey, what just, you know, what just happened? You know, I was trying to understand, right? Because, yeah, it does. It scares the heck out of everybody, right? I mean, that's generally what... It's not good for the entire classroom, right? Not just for that student. So the, be the better that we can do in sort of identifying those things uh, is helpful. Certainly work with the SS. I mean, if it's continuing to happen, right? You might need, you got to call in the big guns, the people you know, who know disability, and say, let's see if we can problem solve this. Let's see if we encourage the student to, instead of having outbursts, like do a little walk away. You know, just walk outside for a couple minutes, take a little chill, you know, come back in. We found that to be really effective for people. It can be like two minutes, you know, okay? Right? Yeah, sometimes you might miss some content or whatever, but, you know, we can kind of help them with that when they come back in. I'd rather help them with that than have an outburst, and now the rest of my class time is like, forget it, <laughs> right? Out the window. My lesson is going out the window. Like, that's what happens, for sure. Okay. Uh, learning style. So, as it was mentioned, uh, you know, folks on the spectrum are very, very concrete. So, oftentimes when I do these talks, most of the faculty are from what disciplines? Anyone else? No. Some. Some. But any guesses? What, what, what professions might you be attracted to if you are a really concrete thinker? Oh, no, sorry, them. STEM. Oh, STEM. STEM. <laughs> By the way, who, half of them are on the spectrum themselves. But anyway. <laughs> so I have to explain things very concretely. No. Okay. <laughs> Well, it's actually kind of true, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> Andy's like, yeah, it's kind of true. Um, and I, I, lie, I lie not on that. Okay. Um, it's true that with more abstract concepts, it's certainly, you know, it's certainly much more difficult um, for folks in the spectrum to understand. Um, I, I often give the example of, um, of lying, right? So lying is actually a social convention. Now, first of all, we're supposed to say it's bad. That's a social convention, too. Lying is bad. Right? But if my dog just died last night, and Angie and I just met for the first time today, and she said, hey, how are you doing? I'm like, Angie, Angie, my dog died last night, and I'm really, I don't know if I can go on. I don't know if I can really do a lecture today. I'm so devastated. She's going to be like, whoa, TMI. Uh, I don't really know each other that well. Right? That's going to be inappropriate. But she asked me, so I'm going to tell the truth, right? Because that is a nuanced social skill that you learn really early on. And I often say to people, think back to the first time you were experimenting with lying to your parents. How did it go? <laughs> you weren't so good, right? Right. When my mom, it was like, did you guys set the barn on fire? And my cousins, I were like, no, uh, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't uh, we saw some kids. We saw. Uh, we were terrible. We got busted completely. We did set fire to the barn. We didn't burn it down. It's just a lot of smoke. <laughs> I kind of had a pyro cousin. We all had one of those, right? <laughs> okay. But then as we get older, we get better at it, folks. We start getting away with it. We start testing how to make our facial expression look convincing, have our nonverbals be very relaxed. No, no, it wasn't us. I have no idea. We saw some kids. 
running around back there, right? Um, I know it must have been them, <laughs> right? Uh, that's developmental thing. We developmentally learn to do that because there's actually social convention says we should. In some circumstances, actually, why? Welcome to Spectrum again. That's, that's too nuanced. That's too abstract. No, they're going to tell you the truth, which also works in your favor. How? You want to know what's going on with them? Ask them. There is no detective work, folks. When, when I'm training counselors, much of what we're doing is this sort of, what's the story behind the story, and I'm doing all this detective work, and what am I hearing, and patterns, and we don't need to do any of that. How are you doing? What's going on? How are you feeling? Well, I'm really depressed about it. Great, let's, go, let's address that, right? So you can ask directly, and I encourage folks to do that. Their distress levels are significant. From what I've already described from you, you can probably you know, impute that yourself. But we also know they have significantly higher levels of depression, anxiety. Almost 90% of the time they have that and ASD. So we're actually talking about, most of the time, a comorbid condition. We don't always think of it that way, but it's truly the case. Um, so they're often in a lot of distress. They have higher levels of suicide. So I also train counselors, ask. Don't wait to find out if they're in distress. Ask them. Ask them if they're having suicidal ideation. Ask them if they're in distress. Because they'll tell you. They'll just tell you. They don't know the lie, folks. <laughs> they don't know that. So that, again, it's a skill that you can just kind of add to your repertoire. It makes it easier. I'm not trying to like work around and figure out or any of that kind of stuff. Yes? So, I think the advice for counselors is, is, is I'm trying to think of like a lot of things you said. I'm trying to imagine as a classroom, like, I can't do any of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, I can't necessarily control my classroom environment when just like a candle player outside. Yeah, yeah. Right? Or, yeah, I know. I can't ask them if they have some sort of necessarily. Right. So, are there resources necessarily uh, to be able to address it when it's happening in front of you and, you know, kind of in line with some of the other things people have said? But, there's a current going class session. Should we be taking on more of a, I don't want to take on like a council role, right. but like, no, should we be doing some one-on-ones with the person to be able to control those environments and those kids we can then form that connection or is that outside of the realm of what we should be doing? It's a really good question and I think we're all dealing with that as professors, right? Not just the folks on the spectrum, right? With the mental health things on campus, with all the things that have been going on in the news, et cetera, we all are in that position. Like, how much do I step in? I'm trained as a counselor. It kind of comes automatically to me. But you're right. Even sometimes I can't cross that boundary, right? Because you're my student. I have to grade you and I will have to refer you to, you know, counseling or uh, to DSS or whomever. But um, what I'm saying is in this case, prevention is kind of the the best bet, right? So, so you see something happening, figuring out what the cause is. Because kind of once it happens, and I think your instinct is right on, once it happens, you're like, oh, I have a mess on my hand. I have no idea you know, what to do. They are held to the same standards, by the way, also, right? So I get that we accommodate folks. But I'm sure Angie gets this call all the time, like, well, do I discipline them? Can they go to judicial? Yes. Yes, they can. Yes. I mean, they're held to the same. They may not understand all these conventions, but I bet you if they come before judicial, they might get a better understanding that this is serious, now that I can't do this kind of thing, right? By the way, what's the number one thing they end up in front of judicial for? Anyone know? Guesses. Oh, by the way, they're like five times more likely to be male. We all know that, all right? You're on the right track. Stalking. Very good. Usually I'm like, okay, um, 
horny 19-year-old males on a college campus, like what? Right. <laughs> so, you know, out of the household for the first time. Okay, but don't know like the social convention of like, let me get the door for you. Hey, do you want to get coffee? Right? Don't know any of that stuff. So what do they do? I see a co-ed, you know, that I like in my Psych 101 class, and I just start to follow her all over campus. And you're also not getting the non-verbals from right. the person right. saying I'm not interested. And she's doing all this kind of stuff. Like Andy's, you know, the girl is kind of doing all this stuff. Like, <laughs> no. Nice, nice to see you. Right? You know, it's non-verbal stuff. I don't understand any of that, but that's I'm not interested, right? So she doesn't, and then also she doesn't know to say, I am not interested, leave me alone, stop following me. When they were occasional. <laughs> we all know some of those on that campus who were like, listen, you know, but that, that's going to be rare. You're going to try to do it politely and know that I'm not interested, but he doesn't understand any of that. So now she's calling parents, parents are calling administration, and he's before judicial. And they're saying, why are you stopping her? And, she's, and he's like, what? I, I wasn't I hurt her. I, I, no, I just like her. I thought she was cute. I, I wanted to ask her out. It's like, yeah, but you've been following her for like a week. You want to ask her out at some point here. You know, right? Okay, so that's, it's very often due to like a misunderstanding. This, by the way, happens in the community as well. I mean, police get called for all kinds of, right? I get interesting stories from attendees to my trainings. Like one said to me, it was a young man I was working with and he was driving and he got pulled over by the police and you know, the police said, you know, did you know that you are going uh, 76 in a 65? And the guy was like, no, I wasn't. I was going 78. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Sir, can you step out of the car? Right? Like, that's going to happen quick, right? Are you playing with me, kid? Like, I, I'm at the end of my shift. I am not putting up with this, right? That's a recipe for disaster really quick, right? He's just being honest and concrete. Same time. No, I was going 78, officer. <laughs> you being a wise guy, what's up with that, right? They think he's right. So you can see how a lot of times in this communication, and if we can think how they think, it's very easy to translate pretty quickly. Oh, they took that like literally. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. Right. Cool. Okay. Um, but anyway, as far as um, you know, making things more concrete um, that are inherently uh, abstract. That's a tough one. I, I got you. I, mean, I hear you. I mean, I have some of the same things. I mean, I've had students who uh, are, are, I would say, sort of somewhat on the spectrum. I don't necessarily know that, but I kind of suspect who I'm teaching counseling skills, which a lot is really abstract. You know. um, and I have to rethink about like how I break them down. So a lot of it's sort of breaking down assignments, almost like what we would call like a task analysis, right? We just break things down to their smaller components and then build up to the larger you know, concepts. So if that's outlines, if it's sentence structure, if it's idea formulation, right, whatever the task might be, um, it's really making it, that, that way it makes it a little more concrete by steps. And also if they don't understand one of those steps, you can sort of try to intervene and, and try to help them understand. Good for all students, by the way. Sometimes, you know, this is not as fast always. But sometimes they, they'll get the concept better um, if we break it down. So it's what I call kind of the task analysis of of assignments or um, skill building or whatever it may be, but just try to think about ways to um, make it into, put into smaller, more digestible components and as uh, concretely as possible, right? So, interestingly, folks on the spectrum, this sounds really strange, but a lot are interested in things like acting, if you've come across this. And when I first heard that, I was like, really? Because <laughs> that's like all 
study of human beings and social interaction and emotion and all that kind of stuff. And so I was surprised again, once again, by one of my students to learn that they actually can mimic. And many who learn, you know, the basic social skills have figured out I don't have good eye contact, so they go actually study it from a book, I kid you not, and then they try to practice it, right, mimic essentially. But often it's sort of missing that visceral authenticity, like it looks fake, right, it looks a little off because they're acting, they're trying to do it, right. So I was working with a young man on spectrum who also had some sort of interesting um, tics that when he was sitting across from me, he'd be kind of like doing this as we're talking. And I was like, boy, how are we going to deal with that with like going to interview, right? You can go to interview for a job, that's going to be tricky. So I was sort of already thinking ahead, but he was a communication major. And um, I don't know what possessed me, but I said, what, you know, what assignments do you have coming up? And he said, I have to do a radio spot. And I'm thinking, oh boy. He was very monotone, very flat when he spoke. And I'm thinking, oh boy, how's this going to go, right? So again, I don't know what possessed me, but I said, want to give me a little of it, right? Because I'm thinking this isn't going to be good. Maybe they can get some pointers or something, right? And he goes, sure. Friday, it's ladies night. Ladies, be there. <laughs> Guys, the ladies will be there. Ladies, $5 drinks. It's all for you. Ladies, ladies, ladies. Friday night, be there. And then he was like, how's that? <laughs> and I was like, well, what, what, just, what just happened? <laughs> okay. So very often they sort of adopt, adopt this coping skill of kind of breaking down and learning things, right, and mimicking others, including things like acting and like this communication thing that I get to witness and other things like that. So that ability uh, is, is still there, but it's just like they're trying to learn things that we do really naturally, right, that we wouldn't even think to break down, right, eye contact, handshake, how to do interviews, right. Uh, when I worked in DSS, um, I worked really closely with the Career Center um, because it was like, you got to show them. You know, you got to role play like heck, you know, because that's your that's your entree into a job. By the way, folks on the spectrum have the highest rates of unemployment and underemployment of any disability. By the way, regardless of severity. Whoa, that means some of them have college degrees, master's degrees, doctorates, and aren't employed. Yeah. So it seems so. I'm from the age of probably. And it seems to me that, so for example, I understand we find very few of these among English majors, generally. Yeah. yeah. Very abstract, right? Sure. Not sure. concrete at all. Right. And I'm thinking, though, that every, pretty much every freshman who comes through here with some exceptions take our Core English 1 and 2 classes. Yeah. Core English 2, Core English 1 is a little because it's, it's about read essays, write essays, most of those arguments are very straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. According yeah. to is a literature-based writing test. Yeah. 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 poetry and drama. Right. So, <laughs> it strikes me that, that it is completely based on abstract, on figures of speech, on metaphor, on uh, similarly yes. all kinds of things that are yes. very vague. Um, so I may so have to teach, like, what is the stitch in time 
You know, my, if we are assuming they know what that means, I may have to be like, that means this. You know, first impression is a lasting one. It means you want to make a good first impression. It's a symbol of that, right? You know, and sometimes they can then understand it, right? It's like, because all of our language is symbolic, by the way, and you know that a word means a certain thing. Right. They just now need to know that an expression means a certain thing, right? Right. But I mean, and they've gone to literature classes in high school. Oh, yeah. Right? You know, you yeah. Get out of high school. But I guess I'm wondering whether there's techniques in particular that, that you know, we can pass on to the people who are teaching these courses. And, you know, is there a way to deal with um, abstract content that, um, because it's, it permeates its class. It's not an yeah. original thing. Yeah. It's constant. So, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> It's a good question. I mean, it, I don't know that I have right. like the perfect right. <laughs> solution, other than sort of the little tips I kind of give you, which may work with some and not with others. Uh, I get that, um, and some may not just do very well in English, but they're great in their STEM major, right? You know, things like that. But like small group work, well, that again, that involves that can be tricky. Yeah, right. Yeah, it can be tricky. Small group, but it does involve more interaction. Right, right. I mean, some of it is. You know, I mean, I would like to see them more kind of more like one-on-one -on -one with like a writing tutor and things like that to really break down like when, when we're talking about, you know, in literature, like, you know, this, these two characters just divorced and we're like, you know, kind of translating what, what would that feel like, right? It's trying to increase that empathy, really understanding from the person's, in this case, the character's perspective. Empathy is also significantly impaired, generally speak, speaking, in folks on the spectrum. And again, has to be sort of explained, right, uh, in a way. Uh, not that they don't have emotions, so you do have to connect to they have emotions and, you know, how would you feel if this happened? That doesn't happen automatically that kind of uh, reciprocal understanding of another person's perspective um, is, is absent, generally speaking. Um, and also what we call mind reading or theory of mind, this idea that when I meet a new person, I'm formulating a theory about who they are and why they're here, and that drives the rest of my communication. They're not able to do that. You know, so the example I give is like, you know, if I show up at a wedding, right, and I see someone I don't know, but we're both standing there kind of in the chapel, I might be like, okay, my theory is, they're with the other party, right? But they're here for the wedding. That's my theory, right? And so I say, oh, hi, how are you? I'm Samantha, I'm with the bride. You know, and I'm assuming they're going to say, with the groom, you know, who, who are you, whatever. And, and they say, oh, no, I'm just the, the maintenance staff, staff. My theory would be wrong, but I used a theory that seemed logical in that situation that drove the rest of our communication. They can't do that. Mm -hmm. uh, that's pretty nuanced, right? <laughs> that's pretty nuanced. But I may have to, like, translate some of that um, specifically to their emotional lived experience. Yeah. What did you? What does it feel like when you sit alone out in the foyer? You know, um, ideas of loneliness, of isolation. Do you understand what those mean? They do also understand that people don't like them, and they know that. You know, they will. They also have very often very significant bullying histories as well. So they've had repeated failures. So when they get here, we're like, I don't understand. Why would they want to isolate? <laughs> Guess what, folks. I mean, some talk about literally getting the heck beat out of them every day. You know, wouldn't you isolate too? You'd be like, I don't know why this, I don't, I don't even know why they don't like me. So I'm just going to stay away, and I'm nervous still, even though I'm trying to avoid, right, any kind of um, negative. And even if it isn't physical, like, they know they are weird or are seen as freakish or strange or, and people just don't want to interact with them. And many make very earnest attempts, very often well before they came to college. So they did not have much success. And so they kind of give up on it, right? And then they're nervous the rest of the time because they're like, I still don't know why I got beat up. 
That could happen here for all I know. I don't know. Or they'll just treat me badly and not like me or whatever. Right? So um, that's again why the, sort of the threats um, to their mental health as well and in their histories are just not particularly good. This, there is a, an expression by many folks on the spectrum, particularly kind of Asperger's or who identify with an Asperger's diagnosis. They call themselves Aspies. Uh, and they have like a social networking website called Wrong Planet. Because they believe they've been plopped down on the wrong planet. I don't understand you. I don't know what you're talking about. Everybody see the movie Meet Dave? That movie? That's an Eddie Murphy movie. So he's plopped down from another planet and has no idea how to like interact with people. He's in a human body, but he doesn't know how to interact with them. That's how they feel everywhere. Everywhere they go. But they do understand like mathematics and things like that. And so, yes, they're drawn to those things. Absolutely. They often also have a an area of specific interest or, or narrow focus or interest. And I've often get asked by parents groups like, well, should I try to encourage them to do something that for a career? And I'm like, yes. Yes, please, if you can. If you can find some way to foray that into a career and expertise, whatever, now, you know, they have that social capital of knowing everything about software testing. I don't know what it is, whatever it is, right? Um, because they do tend to be both passionate about it and expert at it. A lot of professors, by the way, and okay, <laughs> <laughs> who were studying things like the South African teat moth. <laughs> they love it. They know everything about it, right? So, you know, um, one of the earliest identifications of, of children in the spectrum by Hans Asperger's, um, you know, he noticed these eccentricities of these children and that they used really big language and things like that, and he nicknamed them, this is the 1940s folks, little professors. Mm -hmm. No coincidence there. Okay, so both um, so social connectedness, yes, is difficulty, and I think I just set the stage for us to why that happens. So we have to really do a lot more to orchestrate. Uh, many campuses now are doing support groups for folks on the spectrum. So I don't know if that's um, something that's going on here or something to be um, advocated for. Or um, do, do they? Yeah, we have a new yeah. therapist. Um, she started last fall in counseling and psychological services, and she. Good. has a lot of interest and expertise in yeah. it, so she started up a support group. Um, it's small right now, there's only probably four students. Interestingly enough, none of those four students are registered with DFS, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. they've come through the CAPS route. Yeah. But yes, we do have it, um, and that's what I was actually, I'm glad you brought that up, because I was going to say that if you, if you feel like, sometimes we don't see students in DSS who are on the spectrum because they don't think that they need academic accommodations, right. and they're not reaching out on their own volition. Um, sure. So, if you're seeing somebody who's struggling and, you know, the trick is getting that having that conversation and getting them there, mm -hmm. but, you know, we can help, even if it's something like, okay, you need more clarification, you need to meet with yeah. a professor or a tutor or whatever to kind of break things down, um, or sometimes it's the social things and we'll get to them through housing or something like yeah. that, but yeah. we are there for support services, too. It's not just academic yeah. accommodations, um, and we do want to work more with this population. We know they're here. Yeah. They're just not always, and sometimes I get them through discipline, unfortunately, like yeah. you said, and yeah. something the one yeah. thing that, that yeah. needs to be more popular. But we yeah. do have this resource yeah. on campus, and it's great. they're looking to expand that group, so if there are students who so might really be an appropriate fit, they exactly what you're saying. It's being like more, more deliberate about, like, I hate to say sort of targeting, but like educating them about here's what mm -hmm. things we do have on campus and here's how you can connect to other people. And very often too, they also haven't connected with someone on the spectrum. 
they've, in many cases, never met maybe one or two others. And maybe if they went to a camp or something when they were really young or something, the kids on the spectrum. But more and more there with the numbers, they are starting to connect with each other. But it tends to be over social media, things like that, but have not met others like themselves and certainly haven't maybe met others who are going through the same things on the same campus and can, you know, share resources. Share and that's kind of amazing to watch happen it's cool. when they start to form yeah. those connections with yeah. others who understand it and get it. There's some yeah. really the yeah. former school where I worked when we started a group probably 10 plus years ago and there's two guys that yeah. met up and became friends at that point. Now they're, you know, they're both working. They live together as roommates in yeah. apartments totally and apartments. Like yeah. You know, totally it's really, yeah. it's, it's cool. It's very, very powerful. Yeah. So the idea of universality experience and, you know, like they usually say like, I, I can like geek out with this guy. And that's totally guts. I can talk all about yeah. like software testing and they're totally into it and he gives it right back and everyone else is like, oh, you know, right? So, so some of our um, classes involve labs where, where they're learning clinical skills on one another. Yeah. So there's yeah. you know, the classroom management side, there's yeah. the social interaction and, mm -hmm. you know, shy of threats to the rest of the class, I mean, people don't want to partner. Yeah. It's really, really difficult to yeah. orchestrate and, and have these, this practice. And the practice yeah. is necessary. We have mm -hmm. to have this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's no way, there's not enough time in my day to work one on one with right. them, especially right. when I have three in the classroom. Right. So, and they don't always partner with each other, plus it's always, you know, Right. Uh, so, once again, a little orchestration might be in order. So, uh, I have had students uh, with significant disabilities in my classrooms, and I tend to, if they have to work together, I deliberately partner with students who I know may be able to handle it. But basically, like I get a, try to get a read on the other students and I'm like, here's the, here's the groups and I just, here's where you're with, you know, you have no choice. Folks, they need to learn to interact with folks on the spectrum too, they're everywhere. You know what the diagnosis rate is? 145. 141 in New Jersey. It's continuing to grow. It's changing our society. I don't know how else to put that. Now, the CDC has not called it an epidemic, but the numbers are consistent with an epidemic, folks. Absolutely. They are changing our society. Think about all the things that are happening with technology and everything else. Right? Social connectedness, lack of, lack of social, social connectedness. There are aspects, there are folks um, with ASD who are like, we have a disability. We have evolved and you have not. Crazy idea, right? Think about it, though. They may have something there. All this like speed of technology, multitasking, using technology with adeptness, they're leaving us behind. They are leaving us behind fast with those kinds of skills. And it does seem consistent with what's going on in our society. So they may have something there. I, mean, I don't know. I would still like to see them socially connect, <laughs> okay, because we're still there, right? But um, you know, some of us certainly believe that. Companies are now figuring out, yes, folks, they want to only hire people on the spectrum. You heard of this yet? Microsoft, SAP, Walgreens, right? Some are learning things like software testing, things like that. Here's what they do. They're like, no interview. Come right in, go right to work. Try the job. If you can do it, great. If you can't, we'll try to find something else you can do, right? But they get them through all that. We just forget it. That whole interview, interview, by the way, has so little to do with the person being able to do the job. The reason we pick people in interviews is because we feel like I can work next to them. Do you feel like you're going to work next to someone on the spectrum when you see them interview? No. But half the time, most of the time, when they, when they do get hired, companies love them. They are figuring out. They call it the autism advantage. There's a name for it. What UN had a whole summit on it. What's that? I didn't know what you said. It's called the autism advantage. 
They are detail-oriented. They are completely persistent. They totally want to tackle things that are complicated that nobody else wants to do. They are technology-savvy like you wouldn't believe. They are dedicated. They are on time. They are obsessive. The only part they don't do so well is like water, co water cooler talk and that kind of stuff. <laughs> but if you're a boss and you want stuff done, do you want them talking about their water cooler? No. You want those obsessive crazy folks who just sit down and do... Yes, you do. Yes, you do, and they're figuring it out. Finally. Yep. So this whole like warehouses, this whole software testing wings, this whole that all people on the spectrum. On purpose. Yeah. But it's also to try to obviously socially address the issue of underemployment employment with people who clearly have very remarkable skills that can't get through the interview and things like that. Yeah. And then just quickly in kind of connecting to DSS, I think it's a nice way to um, wrap up. Here's here's your Here's your go-to, folks. Here we are. Here they are. Right here. Know their name. <laughs> Let them know who you are. Let them know what you're struggling with. Even if the person is not, you know, connected to DSS. And I'll tell you why that happens, by the way. Like, they're A students in high school, right? Um, and half the time, don't we realize, like, how the school was modifying what they were doing or how they were working around to support them? They're not aware of that kind of stuff, how that was happening. And so they're like... Accommodations, isn't that for like academic stuff? I get straight A's. Why would I go sign up with DSS? Okay, it's so it's sort of a like a, it's a misperception because they don't know all the things that, that Andy and her department can do uh, for them, so they don't realize. So some of it's like an education piece. It's just saying, you know, you're suspecting somebody's on spectrum. You talk to them. You don't have to be like, hey, are you on the spectrum? You know, you just be like, I just do this with all my students. I just make them aware of this service. Here's what I do. Here's the things they can support students with, anyone with um, who has a disability. Right? Um, if you're not sure if you have a disability, go talk to them. You know, see if you could be eligible. These things would be helpful to you. It's connecting you to services. It's if you need a little walk-away break. We can't give you that unless you're registered with ANSI, right? And if that's something that you need, you know. So it's having that conversation. It's building that relationship and that trust. Um, but making them aware that it's not really just academics, although it all influences academics, as you've all alluded to today, right? Um, so it's, it's that kind of conversation. And I agree, it has to be sort of gentle, but on the other end, if you just kind of do it generally and just say, I just do this with all my students, I just let them know about this, you know, this resource on campus. Just like I let you know about Math Center, Computer Center, Writing Center, HAPS, you know, I just do it as part of my talk. Obviously, all of your classes should have that in the syllabus, right? It's required now, I'm sure you've all heard that, seen that. Um, I always kind of do like a little spiel on it as well, not just read it verbatim, but just be like, hey, it's here for you. If you don't think you ever need it, that's fine, but just go get registered. Because at some point, you all of a sudden are like feeling overwhelmed when something happens. Now you're not registered, and now you're trying to figure out how to sort of retroactively pull it back together in the 10th week of you know, your semester, and you're failing. Don't wait for that. And it happens a lot. I had that talk a lot with a lot of students. They say, just, just get in the books, and then if you say, Andrea, I don't need you, I'm good to go, cool, fine. If you're good, fine. But when you need something, you want to already be registered because it takes a month or more sometimes to get someone eligible because you've got to get all the records, you've got to request all that stuff, right? Medical background, psychoeducational evaluations, et cetera. It's a pain. Andy will tell you. <laughs> okay, having done this. But um, these are your go to experts um, for sure on anything you're uh, concerned about or want to address. Um, but I think that I hope your biggest takeaway. What I always try to do is just give you a better understanding of what the world looks like to them and how they interact with the world so that you can make very small tweaks to how you interact and to how you sort of interact with them 
in terms of what they're seeing about a situation um, that I think will help you to um, kind of avert, you know, uh, problems in the future um, and help support them, frankly. But uh, I really thank you for your interest. Um, this is my passion. This is what I do. I love this. I think it's really important. And the numbers are changing our society, folks. You're going to run into them everywhere, not just here on campus. So spread the word, teach others, help others understand how to interact, and um, we hope to have a ripple effect. Any other questions before I wrap up? Thank you very much. You're available to that. Of course. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> always, always. Of course. Thank you. You're welcome.